employees would go around and like whine about their situations and instead just get stuck in their own victimizing and eventually quitting. That was kind of like an aha moment for me because that was definitely what I was doing. I was victimizing myself almost to give myself permission to eventually quit. Welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where female founders step into our world. It's a world of change makers and innovators. We're talking to women paving their own way and extracting the very best lessons. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for ambitious women who are building businesses of the future. So strap in, fellow Lady Brain, and ride with us to Ladyland. What does it take to market a product to the millennial audience and how do you make it meaningful? In this episode, we chat with Swedish-born Bubba Rivera. She's a brand marketing guru. At 21, she launched Uber into Sweden, making Stockholm the fastest growing launch city in the world. At just 25, she landed herself on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. She's been the head of marketing at Away, the direct-to-consumer luggage startup, which was recently valued at over $1 billion. And as if that wasn't enough, she founded her own brand and marketing agency, Buy Bubba. She's also the co-founder of Her Network, a global community for women providing support in the workplace. Her insights are inspiring and they are great food for thought. But before we jumped into her business journey, we asked her about life before marketing. I started working when I was 14 and I... I think I became kind of a workaholic at like age 15. (laughs) I had a big interest in fashion. And again, I come from a very, you know, humble family background with not much money to spend on fashion or beauty or anything like that. So my big passion for fashion had to be financed by myself. So when I realized that I could work and make my own money, that was kind of like, mind-blowing to me. I was like, wait, I'm in charge of my own destiny. That's amazing. I, I really remember that vividly, like that aha moment of being, feeling, a feeling of being in control. Um, so yeah, my first job was in a tea shop. And then simultaneously, I also started working at a restaurant where I did dishes. And yeah, and then I also worked in an eyewear store. I worked as a nanny. Honestly, I would do anything that kind of like came across. I was super open-minded. I always had a very positive mindset. Um, the one job that I did not succeed at and that I actually had to quit, I or maybe I got fired, I don't know, uh, was when I was trying to become a gardener. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? I, I thought being a gardener would be like, I don't know, running around in my bikini, planting flowers. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, that's great for the summer. I've I will get a tan. <laughs> That's what I thought. I mean, again, I never grew up with a garden, so yeah. I have no idea. You sure you weren't thinking pool girl or something? <laughs> <laughs> so the door shut on the world of gardening and another one opened. Bubba studied marketing, graduated and then flew to Berlin to work for an eyewear company. She eventually returned home to Sweden looking for a new challenge. And this would appear to be her leap moment. The move home is what she credits with her introduction to a tiny tech company, which would change the trajectory of her career. Yeah, that's how I ended up with Uber. <laughs> one of the biggest tech yeah. companies. Yeah. I mean, worth noting there is that at the time, no one knew what Uber True. was. Yeah. yeah. So it was kind of like joining a whatever company and people were kind of worried for me. My mom, especially, she's like, wait, you're becoming a driver? I was like, <laughs> no, no, mom. It's the marketing department. She's so like, what? Did Uber come to you? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was all kind of bizarre. I came back from Berlin and was... 
I think very full of myself. I felt like I was this marketing genius and <laughs> I had had the opportunity to work on a very interesting project um, in Berlin where I was able to apply a data-driven approach to a marketing project. And I was actually considering starting a data-driven PR agency at the time. Uh, again, very naive. I had, I was probably 21 and had never worked at an agency. Mm -hmm. um, and as I was talking about this grand idea and networking with people, I think I just started to kind of like get a little bit of a network and a little bit of a reputation as someone who understood data-driven marketing. Very self-claimed, to be quite honest. But it kind of worked because then there was this woman who was in Sweden at the time to um, see if she could find a local team who could launch Uber in Sweden. Um, and as she was networking, she kept hearing my name from a few different sources and eventually decided to shoot off an email to me and introduce herself. And yeah, I took the meeting and honestly, the best decision I could have ever made mm. to join Uber. Wow. And so what was your role? What were you responsible for? I had a lot of hats. Yeah. <laughs> so my like title when I joined was community manager. Mm -hmm. But the reality was that it was just myself and this guy, Martin, who was the driver operations manager. And between the two of us, we were supposed to launch Uber in Sweden. So as you can imagine, there were a lot of things that both of us had to tackle that had nothing to do with our actual titles. Mm. Um, so yeah, we were hustling day and night, doing everything from launch plans to PR strategies, to answering support tickets, to translating the app when things got translated really wrong. <laughs> and um, we became like siblings, you know, who love each other and hate each other at the same time. <laughs> Can you give us some insight into um, some of the strategies you employed when you launched the app? Like what were some of the tactical things that you did? So one thing that I actually always tell people who are launching um, a tech product is to try to understand, like, I think people get caught up in who is the target group for this product when the product is perfect. But the reality is it's very far from perfect in the beginning when you're doing a tech startup. So then you have to ask yourself, who is a target who would be okay with these flaws? And and that was very important for, for me when we were launching Uber in Sweden. The product was far from perfect. You could not always get a car. It wasn't the, the magical experience that it was in the US. Sometimes you had to wait 15 minutes to get a car and sometimes the car will not show up at all. <laughs> so I decided that the best bet for us at such an early stage was to go for the tech community because people who work in tech understand tech mm. and they understand that something that's in an early stage is not... And it'll be flawed. Exactly. Mm. And that doesn't define mm. the product down the line. Um, and simultaneously, people who are in tech are also very excited to get pre-access to stuff. Right. Totally. <laughs> Being early, early adopters. adopters. Yeah. Totally. So I literally had my cohort that I called like the early adopters. And I would personally go to different startups and present the product and give out promo codes to the whole company and things like that. Amazing. Was there a big educational piece that you had to do? Because I imagine that I mean, when it, it launched was, in Australia, people were like, I'm not getting in some randoms car. Like, you know, it's so, totally unsafe. Like, how did you educate the community that this was actually safe? It was affordable. It was convenient. And it was a slightly different product at the time, wasn't it? The yeah. The early days. It was the back, black car product mm. in the beginning. So it wasn't 
like now I think it's easier to sell people into Uber because there is the price component that it's affordable. At the time, it was more of a luxury service. Um, I think what was important for, for me was to not get stuck in convincing people that were skeptical and rather move on to people who were open because I think that was the biggest difference between our launch strategy in Sweden and how I would see some other markets launching sometimes where they would get so stuck in trying to get that target demo of, let's say, the luxury consumer or the models or the artist or whatever. But the reality is most of those people don't always understand tech and they're very demanding and they kind of like are sometimes also very high on themselves <laughs> and like mm. their needs are more important. Um, so I just decided that for Uber in Sweden, we were not going to get stuck trying to convince people that didn't want to get convinced. Mm. And we'll go for the people who were low hanging fruit and mm -hmm. then grow from there. And eventually the product became better and better. So then it made sense to go to the luxury consumers who needed reliability and convenience, et cetera. Yeah. So how did you grow that? I mean, you set out to grow 20% was it week on week? Yeah. <laughs> crazy. It was very crazy. I, I kind of joke that I was probably the only one naive enough to take the job because I don't think I fully understand what 20% growth week over week meant. Um, luckily, Sweden was very open to um, Uber. I think what was unique with Sweden was that it's a country that has very high smartphone adoption. And most people have a smartphone with unlimited data plans, which was a big difference for let's say markets in, um, in Berlin, where some people would stay have flip still have flip phones or, um, like prepaid cards mm. on their phones. Um, but the, um, the big growth driver for us was to build community. And that's something that, um, we did really well in Sweden. We started with the early adopters and we would host events for them and they got to network. And then we created um, like ambassador programs where people who were early adopters were able to invite their friends with special offers. And so it was kind of like, instead of talking too much about ourselves, we tried to give the tools to people who were already liking us to tell our story. So you said earlier when we were down at the lake <laughs> that the first year of Uber for yourself was kind of like this, you know, lightning trajectory. Like you were taking on more and more and more and more. And then in the second year, you sort of felt a little bit itchy yeah. and, you know, there was something, you know, you wanted to continue to accelerate your growth. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that first year and then when your growth started to plateau and why? Yeah. I mean, the first year was so transformative because I came from an experience in the eyewear industry where I always felt like I was like begging the company to move faster and like begging my boss to allow me to do another project and just like you know, trying to convince the company to to move faster. And then I came to Uber where everything was moving at the speed of light and there was no stop. There was no tomorrow. Everything was now. Um, so as a result, I just scaled back on a lot of my side hustles that I had before and mm -hmm. decided for myself that I wanted to put my everything into this job. So as a result, when you have a lack of experience, but you compensate with ambition and time, you grow a lot. So I, I was so excited to be at a company where the more I put in, the more I got back. Mm. The um, the more hours I put in, the the greater growth we would see directly in our business. And I think it became a little bit addictive to have that dashboard of like real time data 
at all times. So it almost felt disencouraging to go to sleep because <laughs> if I would be there monitoring and, and doing more and like thinking of more creative campaigns and, and like I would see the return immediately mm. in, in users and activity and, and conversion rate. And yeah, so I be, definitely became a little bit of a workaholic, but at the same time I was having the best time ever. And I think that was exactly what I wanted at the time. So I think when it came to year two, it started to be a little bit more of like maintaining a business more so than building it up. Mm -hmm. and, and that's when I felt like my full potential was no longer being used. I felt like I definitely had more to give, but Sweden as a market was never going to be the biggest market for Uber. As much as we were one of the fastest growing launch markets and had, you know, a true rocket growth, it was never going to be the biggest market. And then I started to ask myself, then why am I here? Which led you to the incredible experience of moving with Uber over to New York City. Yes. Can you tell us how that came about and how was that experience different to Sweden? It came about with me asking, actually. I I think it was my then boyfriend and now husband who kind of just like had me like stop whining and was like, okay, so what do you want then? And I was like, I mean, I don't know, like maybe relocating. I feel like I should be in the US where the core of the business is. That's always going to be where it's going to be like the biggest opportunities. And he's like, so then why don't you ask to relocate? And I almost like laughed in his face. I was like, I can't just ask. And he was like, why not? And I think that really planted a seed for me. And he shared his perspective as a, as a CEO where he felt like a lot of the times employees would go around and like whine about their situations or have all these ideas in their head that they would never share with the upper management or the people who can actually help them change their roles and change their trajectory within the company. And instead just kind of like get stuck in their own victimizing and eventually quitting. And that was kind of like an aha moment for me because that was definitely what I was doing. I was victimizing myself almost to give myself permission to eventually quit um, and to quit because they weren't valuing me, you know, like almost kind of like laying the foundation for why it wasn't your fault. And that prompted something in me. And I, I realized that the worst thing that can happen if I ask for something that I want is that they say no. And then I'm still where I am right now, where I am right now is still available. So I actually don't have anything to lose. So then I ended up sending off an email. that was kind of a long shot to our VP of operation. So yeah, I was really, really positively surprised when he responded and said that he uh, thought that was a great idea and connected me to the East Coast manager and had me set up a meeting to pitch a role uh, for working out of New York. Uh, so I got to pitch my own role and um, yeah, it got approved. And then a long visa process started after mm. that. The old American the old visa. visa. <laughs> <laughs> I think like this seems to be a really pivotal moment in your career, which is totally, yeah, you know, valuing yourself and your worth and being able to ask for what you want. But why do you think so many people or so many women stop here? Like so many, you could yeah. have stopped here and you, in may, you would maybe had a really great career in Sweden, but why did you keep going? I think we stop because we're scared. At the end of the day, it's easier to, like, it's less scary to just stay where you are. 
than to go into the unknown. You don't know how the person is going to react. You don't know what's going to happen once you bring it up. But I think remembering that the worst thing that can happen is that you are still where you are now is pretty comforting. Mm. And also sometimes that can galvanize you to push through and actually ask the question or make the decision because it's like, well, I don't want to stay where I am right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. So got to do something about it. So what was the experience like in New York when you started there? Um, very different. Was it? Wow. Mm. Like on so many levels. Um, in Sweden, I knew everyone. I could pick up the phone and get on, on the phone with anyone. I could fire off an email to anyone and expect a response. Um, I had such a huge network in Sweden. So coming to New York and realizing that I had to start from scratch was kind of scary. And also I had pitched myself into this head of fashion type of roles. So now I had to kind of like see some fashion partnerships come through, but I didn't know anyone. Um, so I became an expert on LinkedIn. <laughs> I, I think initially I even like upgraded myself to premium and paid for it myself. Just like, I actually have done a lot of things like this in my career where, um, I've invested in my own growth. What were some of the most um, successful, successful partnerships that you drove while you were at Uber? I mean, one that I think was a pivotal moment for me was our first uh, fashion week partnership with uh, Rag and Bone. Um, so the kind of narrative there was that just like Uber had democratized the private driver experience, we were kind of like thinking and asking ourselves, what if we democratize the fashion week experience and use our tech to make fashion week more accessible to, to people. And uh, so we collaborated with rag and bone and had a big part of their show available for people to request on demand through the Uber app and day off. So it was kind of, um, oh, in a way opening up the doors to fashion week to consumers, mm. um, but in a very kind of modern and clever way and utilizing technology as a, as a tool. And that got a lot of attention. Mm. It was covered in all press. And um, I think that was a big, big part to why I was later on also put on the Forbes 30 to 30 list. Um, I think that was during that time, now doing things for consumers within Fashion Week is kind of a given, but that was kind of like the beginning of that. It was quite innovative. I mean, combining the fashion and tech, which makes so much sense yeah. in New York City, is a great idea. But where did you come up with the idea to pitch that role to Uber? Is it because you yeah, had such question. a passion for fashion? Yeah, I mean, I did have a, a background in fashion in, in some sense, you know, working in Berlin for, for this uh, fashionable eyewear brand and obviously personal interest. Um, I also had a lot of friends who were very active in, in the fashion week scene. And I remember always having these conversations with them about it being so predictable these days, fashion weeks looking the same season after season and everyone is just doing what they've always done. And I found that fascinating because that was not at all how the tech industry was working. The tech industry was always pushing the boundaries and questioning the norm. So I think it, it kind of like was born out of the idea of what if we apply the mentality of pushing the boundaries like we do in tech, but apply that into the fashion industry. And why is it that Fashion Week has to be a closed event? It's no longer like in the big early days, it was because the collections were only for buyers and they were like, it should not be seen by consumers. But with social media, these collections were anyway being seen by anyone. So 
does it really matter if there is a section of the show that's for consumers? No, you know, we're, we're not ruining anything. And if anything, we are really changing perspective and giving the power back to the consumer who are mm. the ones who are actually funding the, the growth of these companies. So at what point did you decide that you were sort of wanting to wrap up your time at Uber? Because it sounded like it was an amazing role and you were working in a field you were passionate about and you'd really established yourself um, in that industry. What led you to kind of wanting to think about making a move? It's interesting because my, my time at Uber was so fun, fulfilling and exciting. And I think to this day, it's probably my best career years, those four years, as much as it was intense and at times maybe not great, great for my health. Um, it was definitely like such a fun time. Um, I think what happened was that after four years, um, the company had grown a lot and I started to feel like really great ideas kept getting stuck in bureaucracy and I don't deal well with bureaucracy. And then I think what really kind of like settled it for me was when uh, there was an um, announcement about our reorganization, um, like a reorg happening where a lot of centralized roles would be moving to DC. And I think that's when I felt like I don't have any interest in moving to DC right now. And I also don't have any interest in having a super hyper localized role. I moved to New York to have a greater impact, not to, you know, be operating campaigns within like a neighborhood. Uh, so I, I just felt like my, what I came here to do was no longer being served uh, mm -hmm. within that company. Um, so I think that was a little bit disencouraging for me. And um, I started to open up my perspective to what would a life outside of Uber look like, <laughs> which was a very big question for me. My identity was super tied to Uber. I had spent my last four years as quote unquote Uber Baba. And <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice ring to it. It does. <laughs> and I mean, that was actually like, there are articles where it, like, it says like Uber Baba. Um, yeah. So naturally very scary to mm. think of a life outside of your current identity. Um, so in many ways, I think what happened was that I was just presented with an interesting enough of an, an opportunity, uh, which gave me the courage to take the leap. Um, and away came along and offered uh, a position as um, director of brand marketing and reporting directly to the CEO and having a budget for headcount and getting to set the foundation for their brand. Um, and yeah, I just felt like that was exactly what I came to New York to do. So away is, um, you know, a hugely successful luggage startup in the US. Um, why have they become so successful? And what did you do, you know, during your time there to help grow the brand? I don't really know exactly what, like what made it, but I think that they were really spot on with the direct to consumer um, wave of kind of like brands coming out. Um, we had seen Glossier, we had seen Harry's, we had seen Warby Parker, we had seen these other direct to consumer brands uh, in different industries take off. And there was no reason for why that couldn't happen within travel and in a world where people are traveling more and more. And there is not that one go to cool 
like suitcase brand mm. that was a very clear gap in the market um and obviously extremely good taste when it comes to design and brand and a really good uh, growth team um i was very lucky to be able to run the brand marketing team at a company that also had a super strong uh, performance marketing team um i think that's really where a lot of other companies fail. It's they're either really good at performance marketing or really good at brand. But to have two really strong teams that are able to collaborate is is really unique. And I think that that combination is probably a big part of of a way success. Maintaining a cool brand while mm-hmm. also being extremely mm-hmm. data driven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think collaborations are one of the quickest and easiest ways to grow? a brand or brand awareness in a market? Is that one of the things that you would advise people who are looking to grow their own business to focus on? Mm, Not necessarily as a default. I think also times keep changing. And I think when I, when I was at Uber, that was super innovative. Like most brands were too protective of their brands to allow a collaboration. They were so scared of aligning themselves with someone else um, because they wanted to stay true to their own brand. And their font and their colors and God mm-hmm. knows what. Um, I remember receiving a lot of resistance from brands being like, wait, but our logos will be like next to each other. Okay. But then it has to be our font or, you know, <laughs> people getting stuck in those details. Yeah. And then I think the, the trend shifted to like brand seeing that collaborating with other brands was being proven to be successful because you were amplifying your reach and you were doubling your exposure. But I also think it has flattened out a little bit. I don't mm-hmm. think it's as innovative anymore. Like when we were doing a collaboration at Uber or Away, press would always write about it because yeah. it was a news factor. I don't think it's as exciting today. Um, and I would advise against doing a lot of small, meaningless collaborations yeah. and rather focus on those big ones and doing less, but making more out of each yeah. marketing moment. So I want to kind of change gear a bit to today. Mm-hmm. You have a brand marketing agency called By Baba. Yeah. Can you please tell us more about what you do, who you work with, and how have you structured the business? Yeah. So we started as a brand marketing agency that wanted to rewrite the script in which agencies operated. I experienced firsthand at both Uber and Away a sense of frustration with agencies being very slow moving and having kind of like a one size fits all type of offering, which is really hard for startups that are trying to do things differently. Um, And so I, I started it as a reaction to that. I saw a huge uprise in direct-to-consumer brands taking in more funding and getting more and more market shares. And yet the agency model had remained the same um, and it was not designed for this direct-to-consumer brand. So I saw that opportunity in the market and I have a personal interest in direct-to-consumer brands. So, and obviously I have an experience with mm-hmm. a way so I decided to to create a, a new type of agency. We we called it a next generation brand marketing agency, combining PR with marketing, and functioning as an extension of the in house teams um, of our clients. It has since grown a little bit beyond that. And I started the agency two years ago. And we now have an office in Stockholm and in New York. 
um, which has been really interesting to see how much crossover there is between the two. Um, we worked with, for instance, Glossier when they were launching in Scandinavia. We work with Bumble, who is also an American startup mm -hmm. for their Nordic launch. And um, so we're seeing a lot of kind of like crossover effects of U.S. brands entering the Scandinavian than us being kind of like a natural fit and simultaneously cool Swedish brands wanting to enter the US. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's been cool. Um, but our business model today has grown beyond the agency model, which I think is pretty, pretty neat and pretty unique. Um, we have, uh, during these past two years, created um, a very strong um, community of millennials and we take pride in understanding the millennial audience very well and what all our clients have in common is that they're trying to target that audience mm -hmm. so as a result we have been able to function as not only their thought partners in marketing but also as a brand who has a big community of millennials um, so the Baibaba brand has lately played host to some um, Baibaba led initiatives mm -hmm. such as um, we have an event series that we call Career Day which um, aims to inspire the millennial audience in their careers and kind of rewrite the script in which success is defined mm -hmm. and how we discuss careers um, I think it's about time that we uh, change those conversations for the longest time they've been so anxious and people always feeling like they have to network or like bring business cards and like have to get a promotion. And, and, and for me, success is, is so much more than a title. It's success to me is a sense of joy and a sense of happiness. Um, so I want to be, um, a catalyst for positive change when it comes mm. to people's career uh, journeys and that's what we're trying to do with the career day series and we also have a podcast called out of office where we highlight people who have really manifested their own way um so that's been an interesting kind of extension of the agency model where we have been able to utilize our own brand and platform and community for um events like this and mm. simultaneously for our clients it's an amazing opportunity to be a partner for those things or be part of gift bags or be the presenting partner for the event and things like that. It's a nice way to sort of build the community for the brands that and, you work with. Like it's a very synergistic yeah, exactly. approach. For yeah. sure. Um, and then the third aspect of our business model is um, talent work, which I am extremely lucky that I have that kind of like source of extra income through brand collaborations with my Instagram or doing photo shoots or campaigns. Um, I did a campaign with Tommy Hilfiger this year, which is like in all their stores and billboards around the world. Uh, so like that is an amazing, unique opportunity that I have mm -hmm. as a founder and it creates an extra buffer for our creative initiatives. Um, and it also allows us to be very picky with which clients we take on because yeah. we're not... Like, knock on wood, we're not desperate, but, yeah. you know, yeah. we're able to, to really pick the products we want to work on. I want to talk more about the elusive millennial market. <laughs> <laughs> What's changed in the way that, I guess, businesses and brands market to the millennials? What have you learned through the agency and through your experience? Yeah, I mean, so much has happened and 
on, on so many different levels, but I think just generally speaking, millennials are more demanding and they're really claiming their power as a consumer and asking the right questions, in my opinion, asking brands where things are sourced or what their leadership teams look like or whatever it might be. I feel like we're in, we're in a world now where purpose and, um, ethics and sustainability and diversity and equality are uh, are leading words i think to a fault sometimes because it's um, it's created this uh, desperation for some brands that everything they do has to be super purposeful but at the same time i don't know if every every product in the world needs to have the biggest purpose you know mm. um, if you're I don't know, selling Q-tips, maybe you don't need to do like the biggest equality campaign. Mm. So I think that's where we're seeing some um, uh, failures, I would say, when companies are desperately trying to be part of relevant conversations, but maybe don't have everything to back it up. Mm. Uh, so it's a fine line. And, and that's what I love about our job is that I feel like we have such a strong understanding for the demographic and we're in many ways, we're in those communities and in those conversations, um, not just myself, but everyone in my team. Um, I have sustainability activists in my team, I have people from different mm. backgrounds and people from fashion and not. So we were able to have a very unique uh, lens when we advise our, our brands on where to draw the line of of how to be part of these conversations. Mm. Um, and also sometimes I think brands need to understand that not everything is a marketing campaign. And I think that's what we're now starting to see is that some of these value-driven conversations need to be true initiatives, not campaigns. Can you elaborate on that? Okay, here's one thing that I'm like allergic to. (laughs) (laughs) Is, you know, brands who... For one month of the year, they're like, 5% of our profits will go to pick an organization. Mm-hmm. Insert charity here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and then they think that people are going to give a damn. Like, we're past that. Mm-hmm. And that is um, like trying to put a sticker on something. Um, and I think the millennial audience and even more so the Gen Zs are, are, mm. are just too knowledgeable today to to fall for those um, kind of like marketing tricks in, in trying to be trying to be purposeful for mm. a, for a day. Um, so I think it's putting new requirements for brands to if this is something that you truly want to be part of, let's be honest with ourselves. Where are we today? What's our goal, and how do we realistically get there? And I think a brand that's doing that really well, and obviously I'm biased because we're working with them, but is Pros, which is um. Um, hair care brand and um, customizable uh, products um, and they went out and said that they want to be um, carbon neutral by the end of 2020 they recognize that they're not there yet but that's their goal and here is how they're planning to get there mm-hmm. and I think that's the right way to be part of these conversations is to acknowledge where you're falling short mm-hmm. but having clear goals and intent Mm. to get there um i think being honest as a company mm. is really what you you have to do today in order to be heard yeah absolutely because as you said millennials and gen z we have access to so much information that we're empowered 
with yeah. that knowledge and if they're not having an honest conversation with you, you're just going to walk away, which actually makes, you know, our job as marketers a lot more difficult, Super right? hard, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, also for us when we're onboarding a brand, I almost feel like I'm an investor at times because mm. I'm, I'm asking all these questions and I'm really... We're going so deep into <laughs> what these brands are trying to do in order to know if this is something that makes sense for us to be part of, mm. because we also have a brand and a reputation to be aware of. And I think that's where our model is a little bit different from an agency that's more behind the scenes. We are very much um, a stamp of approval in many cases. So that with that comes a huge responsibility. Mm. How do you vet the brands that you work with? Mm. I, I wish I had like a form where I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. we just pass tick, them tick, through tick, the, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a very, it, it's not a super streamlined process to be quite honest. Um, a lot of it is, um, how much we believe in the founder. Yeah. Uh, honestly, that's probably the first part. I, I'm not someone to get super sold on just the idea. I think there are many good ideas for me operations it's really important mm-hmm. and the person who is in charge of that is the founder so how how much do we believe that the founder has the right values um and the right kind of like intent um to to get this idea off the ground what have you learned starting up your own agency and being responsible for other people as opposed to working in you know some of the biggest startups around the world what's been the difference what have you learned what have you loved I love that I'm able to constantly redesign my own destiny. I think that's, and and not only my own, but also my employees. Um, And that's something that I I really try to instill in every team retreat we have or, or whatnot is to remind them that we're really building this together and this should be fun, not just for me, but for everyone involved. So if we are working with clients that everyone is hating, then we don't need to, you know what I mean? Like we're really in charge and we, we get to, to decide how we want our work days and our work projects to look like. Um, and simultaneously providing transparency to the team on where is the revenue coming from and, you know, what's realistic versus what would be a stretch goal. Um, so yeah, I I think what I love the most is, is that part of like, not feeling like I'm, I'm a victim of a structure. Mm. Um, I'm a creator. So not only do you run a brand marketing biz and you have, you know, an extremely um, beautiful Instagram page and personal brand, you're also the co-founder of Her Network, which is a global community of women around the world. This has been a huge source of inspiration for us personally. You know, I think you're doing some amazing things. Can you tell us why you started Her Network and what have you hoped to achieve from creating it? Yeah, Her is such a passion project for me. It's It has such a special place in my heart. It it started truly as a, as a passion project. Um, we never started with ambition to with any certain ambition, actually. We just mm-hmm. wanted to connect women. Um, and I think a huge shout out really goes to Marika Frumes, who is my co-founder in it. And she's also the CEO of the organization and the one who is making it all possible from an operational standpoint on a day-to-day basis. Since, as you can tell, I'm pretty I'm pretty busy with, with my agency and, um, and everything else. So I'm super grateful that I actually met Marika mm. at a her dinner, <laughs> which is <laughs> such that. a meet cute. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, we, we started initially as, um, as a way to, to connect women in an effort to uh, help propel each other forward in, in our careers. I think since then it's really grown beyond career, um, career growth, and it's become more of a community of support network. And one thing that we really pride ourselves in is in being vulnerable. I think vulnerability for the longest part has been perceived as something negative and a weakness. And we think that through vulnerability is really when where true connection happens. So at every her event, we prompt everyone to put out an ask and we go one by one around the table and everyone has to put out an ask, something that's top of mind for them right now. And for some people that comes very natural, for some people it, it, it's pretty scary, but we, we, we realize that it changes the whole dynamic in the room. Um, so yeah, with, with the Her community, we really hope this to be the go-to source for female building the lives that they want to live, whether that's uh, as a CEO or as a um, freelancer or artist, we have a very diverse community. We also have a lot of moms and I would say mostly young moms in the community. Um, so yeah, it's it's been super powerful to watch. It started as a labor of love. Us doing it on the side, you guys can probably relate. Yep, yep, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and it, it grew out of control. We we yeah. had a, a list of you know thousands of members and a wait list, and getting emails every day from people wanting more out of the community. So this uh, this month, actually, we introduced um, a membership model, which is. Um, gonna be very very exciting um we basically realized that we have so much more to give to the community and if we're able to narrow down the gigantic list of thousands of people mm -hmm. who we don't know even if they're so engaged anymore or like what they need and narrow it down to people um, who actually want to be part of this and want to commit um we're going to be able to create even more value. We have had people find their co-founder through the community, people find their jobs, people getting the courage to leave their jobs and finding their first freelance client. And yeah. So is your whole team at her volunteer based? It started like that. Yep. Yeah. So the, the goal here now is to turn into more official roles. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously a community manager is something that's uh, super crucial because um, it's very easy that Marika and I otherwise become the community managers and uh, that is prohibited of growth if it becomes yeah. too attached to us. The community at the end of the day is not about Marika or I, it, it's yeah. about the women within her. So we really want to to build on that and not make it too too much about us. Where do you source inspiration from? You're obviously a creative. You come up with lots of creative marketing campaigns and ideas. Where do you get that inspo from and do you ever get stuck? Yeah, it's interesting when it comes to inspiration because it always comes when you're not thinking about it. Mm. So that's why I'm a true believer in vacation <laughs> and uh, in change of scenery. Um, I, My creative, um, Jennifer, who's our senior creative manager, uh, her and I have this like ongoing joke that whenever I'm going on vacation, she knows she's going to get the most texts from me than she ever gets because that's when all my ideas come. I'm like, Jen, what about 
insert crazy idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for me, it definitely comes when I am not um, checking off a to-do list. Yeah. What's one piece of advice you'd offer young professionals, especially women that are looking to start up their own business, agency, creative project? What, what would you? What advice would you give them? To just do it. I think that the biggest um, misconception is that you have to have everything figured out. Every time I hear about people wanting to start something, they always have a million of reasons for why they have to wait. They have to save up more money or they have to get more experience or they have to find a co-founder or they have to. And and I think those are just um, mechanisms that your body are is producing as a way to protect you from the unknown. And my best advice is to to just do it and put the start getting stuck in like all the things that you need to have in place and rather just think of like, what are the things you need to have in place today? One foot in front of the other. Yeah, totally. I think if I would have known the magnitude of what it entailed to run the type of business I run today, I would never have started Mm. it, Mm. but I am loving it now and I'm doing totally fine. I just didn't get extremely overwhelmed with planning because I just decided that, I know marketing, so I should be able to do a brand marketing agency in some sort of form. Yep. And it can I can define it as I go. Mm, figure it out along the way. Yeah, and you said that you often do things a little bit differently yeah. to how the people do it. And that's fine. I think sometimes people get almost like worried that they don't know it all, but no one knows it all. And I don't know if you want to know it all either. Because <laughs> it might put you off. Uh, yeah, <laughs> quite tiring. Yeah. <laughs> And half the fun is figuring it out as you go. Totally. No, I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Just, just do it. And, um, when people, another thing that I feel like is a common fear amongst women is that we tend to focus so much on our weaknesses Mm. and, oh, but I'm not so good with finances or like, yeah, I'm really good on the creative side, but you know, the business side, I don't understand as much. And that's probably not going to change. So I don't know why you're waiting. Just like find a way to outsource it or find a way that it's like the bare minimum you can do to get you to the next phase. Um, I think really focusing on what's truly important here and now and then creating a business that where your strength can flourish. All right. And finally, what's next for you and for Bye Baba? And the Her Network. <laughs> All of the things. All, the, All things. Of the things. I mean, top of mind, the Her Network for sure. And the membership model goes into effect September 1st. So that's a big milestone. We're finalizing um, the the first members and founding members right now. Um, and uh, announcing the programming for the first year of the official Her 2.0 membership model. So that's really exciting and um, taking up a lot of my brain power in terms of what's next for Bye Baba. We are uh, doing our first international career day event. So it's going to be a big event in Stockholm, uh, accommodating 200 people um, in mid-August. And yeah, that's a big deal for us. And obviously the podcast... um, yeah, I, I would say that on, on the Bye Baba front, it's definitely a next stepping into a new chapter of Bye Baba led initiatives and kind of owning our uh, power as, um, as a thought leader and as a brand. Amazing. Beautiful. Thank you, guys. Amazing. Thanks for coming. 
We took a lot out of this interview, but a couple of things really stood out. When building a brand for the millennial market, authenticity and transparency are the key ingredients. If you're going to build a business in this day and age, you need to have purpose beyond profit. Another thing, there's huge power in just asking the question. It's always a no until you ask. And also, you'll never know where a yes could lead. We'd love to hear your thoughts and takeouts. Come across to ladybrains.com.au to continue the conversation and find out more info about the podcast and events. Ladyland is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolich.